Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety and the only comedy podcast to denounce terrorism. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. You can check out old episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can listen to yesterday's bonus episode with last week's guest, Vanna Dabney. I hope you enjoy that if you have already listened to it thank you really good chat can't believe we've done 75 episodes already we have 76 and if you count the bonus this is 77 but uh 76 slash 77 episodes can't believe it it's been a been a good year and um you know one of the big things happening this year in regards to yesterday's bonus episode one of the things happening is a reckoning of what people do wrong in uh, in spaces and how they treat women. A lot of discrimination, a lot of harassment going on. And, you know, it needs to stop. I just read this morning that John Oliver was having a discussion with uh, a few people uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival. But Dustin Hoffman was on the dais, and he was talking uh, to Dustin Hoffman about the accusations against him, allegations against him, mostly about just crude jokes. I don't recall all of the allegations against Dustin Hoffman, but the ones that I did read sounded like he was making crude jokes. And it, it just didn't sound like Dustin Hoffman fully got that in the exchange that he had with John Oliver. I didn't see the exchange. I didn't read all of it. But it didn't please John Oliver the way Dustin Hoffman responded to this stuff. And, you know, I get that it was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, when a lot of these things happened with him. And I do get that people would make the sort of jokes that he was making. But we can't use that as an excuse anymore you know like juvenile jokes some of them are fine when we're 13 but then we grow out of that and when we get older and think about some of those jokes some of them we say like yeah whatever I would never make that joke now not offensive but also juvenile and then there are other jokes where you might look back on and say wow that was inappropriate I got away with something and I think all of us might be guilty of something like that and we can't hide behind, well, people used to make piggish jokes back in the 80s. You know, like people could would make jokes and a woman would call them a pig and everyone would just laugh it off and it wasn't such a big deal. But here's the thing. Women didn't like it then. That's why they would call you a pig when you made those jokes. So looking back on it and having the self-awareness to reflect and say, I, I understand that the culture at the time... It was popular to make those sort of jokes. A bunch of people laughed, but women didn't like the jokes or the women I was talking to, because that's the case with Dustin Hoffman. The women that he was talking to, they're like, well, I like him as a guy, but, you know, he's being a creep in these moments. And I just think you have to reconcile that. 
in yourself. If you're if you're that person, we've all made mistakes in the past, and that might just be chalked up to mistakes and not predatory behavior like the other stuff that's coming out. But we just need to get better at dialogue, and that goes for the accused, and that goes for the advocates. I don't think the people who are accusing anyone have engaged in anything wrong. I think they are champions. I think that's one of the big takebacks I'm having for 2017, now that we're approaching the very end of the year, is just how strong these women are for coming out and saying, enough is enough. This has been going on for so long, and it's been wrong the entire time. And we've said that it's wrong, but we were quieted and we just gave up fighting. And we didn't have any advocates at the time. People would just say, let it go. But not anymore. And I think that is amazing. And I think that's something that we should all really applaud and celebrate about this year and about what women are doing stepping forward. But if you go on Twitter, then you see not only bad apologies and bad responses to the allegations leveled against people, but you're also seeing advocates get in discussions that are just not fruitful or helpful. And that's one of the reasons I really appreciate the discourse that I had with Vanna Dabney, which was in yesterday's bonus episode, was because there wasn't, you know, like, I can't say that we agree 100%. I don't know that we necessarily disagreed, though. But there weren't moments where anyone was trying to get at the other person or win an argument, like you see a lot online. And I think that's a healthier way to go about things because, listen, sometimes we misspeak. And I know I did in that episode. There were a couple things I said was like, well, that's not really the best way to word that to convey the point you're trying to make, Jason. But and I, I saw this on Michael Ian Black's Twitter in the last few days, people just leveling and heaping crap on him for not perfectly adhering to their personal ideals. And he said something about it that I thought was interesting. He said, if I, if I don't pass some magical thinking purity test, and then he goes on, and I just like that magical thinking purity test, because that is one of the things that's going on in a lot of these bad examples of discourse that I see, where people don't accept the nuance of the point that you're overall making. Someone could essentially be saying something that is, the, that is good and that has good intentions and it's the right thing to say. But because they didn't talk in enough code, they were bashed for it. And I think that's just one of the worst things going on right now. I don't have an answer for it other than how can we just approach things in a more thoughtful and peaceful way so that we can actually have a fruitful discussion because ultimately I think what we want is progress. And if we want progress, I think there's a good way to do it. And I think the example that the very great example that's being set on the right way to seek progress is in the people who are stepping forward and saying that they were assaulted or harassed or mistreated through racism or some sort of discrimination or harassment. They are showing so much strength and humility and compassion, and they are not just coming forward and bashing anybody. They're not bashing at all. They're stepping forward in strength and, and meeting what is wrong at the core. 
I was listening to the Bad Christian podcast yesterday, and they did a recent episode with Lecrae. And one of the co-hosts was on this podcast, Toby Morell. And so that's his podcast, if you've never heard of it. And Lecrae is a rapper, and he's a Christian rapper. He's a black guy who, in his last album, talked about what black men face and black people face and what he personally faced in the evangelical Christian community. And evangelical Christians got very angry that he was saying what he said, and they thought he was wrong, and so they said, we're not going to support you anymore, and they deleted his music off of their iPods or iPhones and also off of their kids' iTunes, and it wrecked him. It's a really good discussion, but one of the points that Matt Carter made, he's one of the co-hosts of the Bad Christian Podcast, he was saying, so these people, they think Lecrae is wrong. And you know what? Lecrae's not wrong. But they think he's wrong, and that's their response to bash him? That's not how you treat your kid when you're trying, when your kid says something that you think is wrong. You don't do that to them. You don't go that hard on them. You just find a different way to meet the issue at its core. And again, that goes back to the right way to address this, and that's being so wonderfully exemplified in the people who are stepping forward against racism and discrimination and sexism and misogyny and assault right now, and just the power structure that allows those things to persist. So let's move forward taking a tip from them, because they're the ones doing it the right way, and the rest of us are screwing it up. We're really muddying the waters right now, because a lot of people, if they just go on Twitter and see these exchanges between people who are not victims, and they're just people bashing each other and trying to get everyone to talk in code, that muddies the waters, and I think it hurts any sort of progress. But we are seeing a lot of progress, and that's fantastic. Let's get to the great talk that we have for today. It is with actress and comedian Darylynn Kelleher. She's fantastic. We have a really good discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my chat with Darylynn. So you were in New York for five or so years. Yes. Is that where you started doing comedy? Yes. Okay. Are you from New York or where are you originally from? Originally, I am from Boston. Okay. So when did you start getting into comedy and and entertainment um well entertainment broadly speaking i mean i I was always interested in acting Mm -hmm. and i took a lot of acting classes in high school and college and then after college um and i just never really seemed to be able to get involved in that world full throttle it was more just like i was dabbling and interested Mm -hmm. um and then i would say about a year after college is when I first did stand-up. How long before you moved to New York? Yeah, I, I went to college in Boston, and I moved to New York within the, within the year after okay. school. And, uh, yeah, I had gone to a few stand-up shows in Boston, mm-hmm. and I was interested, and I kind of would go up to the comedians, and I would I would ask them about just how to do comedy and, and, mm-hmm. and the whole world. But uh, I was more just kind of like creeping around them. Um, I was <laughs> any, really unsure. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see any big names <laughs> there? Not really. Just more like comics that had been at it for a few years, you okay. know? All right. And what, yeah. what, I know people have asked me uh, back from in my hometown when I was a little more established there uh, than they were. We were all still just open micers, though. Um, 
but they hadn't started comedy yet, so they were asking all those same sort of questions, and the general answer you could always give was, you just got to do it. Is that the sort of answer people were giving you in Boston? A little bit of that, but also they were telling me, like, open mics to go to and, mm-hmm. and shows to check out. Um, so they were they were being helpful. Yeah. Um, I think I, I had some more specific questions about um, if you should tell stories up there or or how to even go about it. And, and yeah, they were they were helpful for sure. But uh, it was essentially after my own personal trial and error, the answer was you just got to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's. That's why it ends up being such a uh, straightforward answer. Just like, you, well, just take your ideas up there and do it. Like, just sign up for the open mic. Because that's really the big thing, I guess, that people need to learn. But And, and you're asking about, should I tell stories? That's another common question that people ask. And that, I think, with the success of various comics, that, that has sort of changed. I, I feel like 10 years ago... People would say, don't tell stories. But now it's kind of like, well, Mike Birbiglia is too big to say, don't tell stories. <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. everything just comes to be, you just got to get up there and figure out who you are and figure out the best way to present that in a humorous way. It's, no, you're, you're really, you're spot on though. It's true that there's like trends in comedy and whoever's doing really well, that becomes like the thing that then everyone seems to be mimicking out there in the circuit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you see it a lot. Um, and then it's tempting to, to fall into that trap yourself. But I agree with you. I think the best thing is just to to start with yourself and go from there. Yeah. Now, when was it that you were in New York? Like, what, what uh, um, was that? Yeah, so I first started doing comedy in New York in 2011. Okay. And um, I left there about a year ago. Okay. And... That means there was a lot of usage of the internet at that time. I mean, like by 2011, everyone was getting on Twitter and everything. And you've gotten a lot of attention on Twitter and online with with your material. Uh, How did that develop for you? Was that something that you started out doing at the time? Like, what was your approach when it came to using Twitter? Thanks. Um, well, I really had no idea what to post on Twitter in the beginning. I think I got my Twitter account in 2009 before I was even doing comedy. and mm-hmm. um, I was really just trying to figure it all out. And I, I, I didn't start to get progress on there until I gave myself permission to be weird. Because <laughs> um, I was really scared in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then once I just was like, I, I was just like, I'll say anything. Just the the anything that like... I might be too embarrassed to say in person. I'll just put it on there. Oh. So, so then I did. Yeah. And then I started to get just like people I knew were like a little responsive. And then one day somebody I knew wrote an article about my Twitter and um, posted it on Facebook. And that got me a bunch more followers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as luck would have it, Buzzfeed also stopped me on the street one day in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And they asked me what my New Year's resolution was. And I said, more Twitter followers. So then in that day alone, I got a thousand Twitter followers just from them posting my handle. Yeah. So just a bunch of things like that. And then the more people that would follow me, the more confident I would get. And the more I learned to be able to to use that platform. That's great. (laughs) And I, I like that bravery test of, well, I'm too 
this. I'm too scared. I'm too afraid to say this in person. So I'll just put it out there where anyone can see it. <laughs> like that is a <laughs> bravery test. You know, it's interesting. I always feel like Twitter is like this uh, world of of thoughts. Like even though my name and my picture is there, I still feel like it's like just a big filing cabinet of thoughts. And mm-hmm. and when like because you're not looking at who the person is. This, the only thing that's important there is the text. So it could be coming from anyone. But if I said something that I put on Twitter in real life, there's so many other judgmental factors, like the way I look mm. and the way I sound. But I could mm-hmm. put stuff on there that it's just about obje- being objectively funny. Right. Yeah. And did that help you overcome the fear of being weird in your work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Like, a lot of the stuff that I was afraid to put online, I feel like, you know, as I call it weird, I call it crazy. Uh, it was really just more like um, indulging in my irrational emotions. <laughs> and that's why I was afraid to, yeah, that's why I was afraid to like say it to other people. Cause I was, you know, you know how like you have shame intertwined with something and you know that it's, it's not right, but you, mm-hmm. you still feel it anyway. Like there's that disconnect between the heart and the mind. So it just gave me, it gave me permission to be bad in a way. <laughs> and and that's what I think people can relate to. Yeah, that's nice. I, I think for myself at least, and I've heard other people talk about this, when it comes to saying things online, especially on Twitter, it can be really easy to be afraid to say something because of what others might say to criticize you. And, and that's gotten pretty crazy on Twitter. I mean, people try to like, it's as if people's purpose is only to drag somebody online. They're not trying to have a discussion. They're not trying to educate. They just want to drag people. I've come across people like that too. And it just, it's it's even scarier now uh, than just opening up. It's now, if I say this weird thing and someone takes it the wrong way, it can also ruin my reputation. That's true. I mean, that that's definitely out there. Um, and I've definitely experienced that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, on the other hand, the block button is my friend. Um, <laughs> I love really the mute like, button because then they keep saying things and they don't realize that you've ignored them all day. <laughs> you know, just oh, interesting. The mute works so um, well because like, I'll let you be crazy and I'll, I will appear like I am taking the high road and just ignoring you. Whereas a block, it, it like feeds their troll. Yeah, I guess so. I kind of like the block because it, 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 it sends a message like you, you can't talk to me that way. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't give people, <laughs> but I also see your point. Reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I generally assume that they think like, yeah, I got to them, but that's just because I'm neurotic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're preaching to the choir, don't worry. <laughs> so, if you were going to give some advice on how somebody can approach Twitter and trying to be objectively funny, as you were mentioning, what sort of advice would you give them? Because that's something I want to get better at. Um, I'd say the number one thing is to use as few words as possible in what you're trying to say. Like, Go especially like I look at my old tweets and I'm like, wow, that's so long. So like, you, like go to your 
tweet and and go through it and make it shorter, but then like take what you had and then make it shorter again and again, mm. <laughs> and then it's ready to post. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that I think that's so important because it's it really is like a competition, like who can communicate the most in the fewest amount of words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I definitely want to be clear, and too many words hurts clarity. And sometimes, of course, too few words can hurt clarity, but I think it is better to use just the amount of words that you need to get the point across. I think what Definitely. Happens, yeah. I think what happens to me a lot is that I can easily get in my head with the wording of something. Like, you know, I'm already just thinking, like, this is too long. How do I need to change it? This is going to get confused in this way. How can someone avoid mm-hmm. some of those pitfalls? Of getting in your head about it? I mean, yeah. I kind of think you should be in your head about it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that you're naturally in your head if you're thinking about it and processing it. But Yeah, get, I well, I mean, wall. you're always going to be scared. That's the thing. Like, it, it's really hard to be yourself. It, mm-hmm. Like, there are those people out there who it's it's not hard for them, but they're usually not on Twitter. <laughs> it's... Um, it, it, just the scary thing. Sometimes I post about like, if I feel especially anxious posting something, I'll post again. Like I'm so scared that I posted that. Or, um, I think the best thing you can do is to just take ownership of, of the fact that you are in your head and make a joke about the fact that you are in your head next (laughs) and you'll feel free. That's nice. I like it. There's a lot of good comedy out there of people taking that sort of approach like uh a couple of comics actually like uh, not stand-up comics but i mean comic strips are that sort of thing of someone just like talking about their depression or talking about how uh neurotic they are with their boyfriend and stuff like there are a lot of great things like that out there and i think it catches people's attention because they are just being really open like like you say Yeah, I think there's a lot that people hide from each other, Mm -hmm. especially now in a world where you're supposed to look as cool as possible. You're Mm -hmm. supposed to look like your life is all together. Mm -hmm. And social media has really enhanced that. And it's become this, um, I guess, competition. And the people who are taking themselves out of that and saying, well, I'm not going to indulge in that. I'm just going to put out there all of it all of me Mm -hmm. those are the ones that i think are standing out agreed yeah that's really good freedom to have and uh i I think Mm. we all sort of experience that i mean i could just i like instagram but sometimes i I flip through there and i see how well someone from high school or college is doing and i'll think i'm not doing as well as they are but that's just a picture some people are good at crafting an image um it's Not so true. That much better. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend who's really big on Instagram, and she was telling me how she knows people who the way that they have grown on Instagram is by posting things like they'll thank large brands for sending them things like mm-hmm. clothing, but honestly, they just went to the store and bought the clothing. Oh, but, wow. but they, yeah, they they make it look like the brand sent them stuff so that they can grow and look big and then have other brands offer them things. Oh, so there's wow. just like, 
I know. It, that blew my mind. There's that, so many tricks out there that people are using, and I just don't believe any of it, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it's true, but I did hear that on, uh, and it may have been on the Chappelle show, but <laughs> for all I know, but I did hear someone say that on MTV Cribs, they would actually rent a lot of the house. Like, a lot of people rented a house for the episode to make it look like they were live in large or larger than they were. I would living. absolutely believe that. Like yeah. in every medium, there are tricks like that. And it's like, there's a reason why entertainment is entertainment. You know, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be a fantasy. And, mm-hmm. and so every time I feel intimidated by another person's supposed fantasy, I, you just have to remember that <laughs> it's entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get a good idea of how someone's living just by, a few posts on their Instagram. So shake that off. Yeah. Now, while you were in New York, uh, you mentioned that you ran a lot of shows and that's something I would love to do is to uh, start a show, uh, get a, get a room open. Were they all stand up shows or did you do any other kind of shows like maybe variety or sketch shows? Well, the one that, uh, they were all stand-up shows, but there was one where we incorporated other stuff. I don't know that I would call it a variety show. It it was probably on the cusp of a a variety show. Mm -hmm. We intertwined and interspersed uh, funny short videos with stand-up, and then sometimes we would have musical comedy, um, but that was more rare. But So the show was called Comedyology. It was in the back of a video store in Brooklyn, a video store slash bar called Videology. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, so it would be half stand-up, half funny shorts. That's very cool. So, and was it just as simple as approaching a venue? Or what did you do? What was the process? Well, the thing about running a show in New York is you have to be very conscious of how many shows there are. Uh, well, and and even even just you asked me this, you have to like know exactly what your goal is before you're getting going with the show. Like for me, my goal was to create something that stood out from the millions of other shows, yeah. and to have a space where um, I knew it could could grow and become a big show. Um, some people just want to put on shows so they're going to be able to create like a workout room so they could just practice. And some people, they on purpose want a tiny room because they don't want to have the pressure of having to pack it out. Like you have to know what your own limitations are before you even go about finding a venue. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me personally, I wanted to create something really different and something that could grow into, into a leading show. So, um, Comedyology, that was the biggest show. Well, it was that and the White Hotel. Those two, they were, they were pretty large spaces. But I wanted something that was special. It looked, I wanted something that looked unique. And I wanted something where um, I could do at least 60, 70 people um, at a minimum. The White Hotel, ended up, I think that was like 80 seats or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wanted something that, uh, would be challenging to fill, yet if I did fill it, it would be a leading show. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, I, I would say figure out what you're trying to do. Then once you've got your goals in mind, then yeah, you just approach the venue, you tell them about your experience, your credits, and 
and what your intentions are. And usually owners, they're pretty open to hearing about it. And how did you know what venues existed to like even consider? I mean, uh, when uh, it's like a hotel. That's a lot of getting out there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it's just, you know, I would have known, I would have thought to look at a hotel, you know, like I probably just would have looked sure. at, oh, what has theater in the name or something, you know, like I just would have Googled and then tried to <laughs> figure something out. Yeah. Well, when it came to doing the hotel, I'd been running shows for a few years and I really uh, like, again, like my goal was always do something different. So I was thinking to myself, like, um, people are attracted to nice things. Hotels are nice. So mm-hmm. let's see about the spaces they have. Like I did a show in another hotel too at the McCarran hotel. And that one had a huge like Manhattan Brooklyn view behind it too, while the show was going on. So like, I was always looking for things aesthetically that people could get excited about. Mm. And, um, and, and yeah, so I would just approach the, the hotel and it was, it, it actually wasn't as hard as I thought it would be because, there's not a ton of people trying to put on entertainment in hotels. So it's like they want to get people in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a perfect fit. That's really neat. I like that. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna make a deeper mental note. Already I have this podcast that's making a mental note, but I'm going to make a deeper one on that because I really like that. <laughs> yeah, it's deep in it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, you also studied sketch at UCB. Now, was this at New York or is this when you went to L.A.? Um, I studied sketch and improv at the UCB in New York. Awesome. And uh, I guess their Chelsea space is now closing its doors so they can move to Hell's Kitchen. So I'm sure you have a lot of great memories. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw that. Well, I uh, only did 101 at both, mm-hmm. in both of those medium so i didn't spend a ton of time at the ucb i did go to whiplash and i would check out their shows but yeah i wasn't like i didn't consider myself like a ucb kid you know what i mean yeah oh no i totally get you because i'm in the improv world too so i know what like feeling like a kid of the theater is like and you know checking stuff out too um yeah so what got them got you to make the move to l.a well, I had been doing shows for, you know, about five years. And I think you, for after a while, you can get stir crazy in the same city. And uh, there was actually a, a CBS producer that had found me online um, on Facebook. And he had come to see some of my stand up shows. And he had, at the time, he was considering me for a pilot. It ended up not going anywhere, but mm-hmm. it was like a hugely exciting thing and he had this huge history in Hollywood and he had been around for a lot of years and it really got me thinking when I had something like that dangled in front of me I was like whoa like that would be amazing to go live in Hollywood so I kind of just gravitated out here because I was like on the cusp of getting something I didn't get it but I was like well what can I give myself to open up the door for similar opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the place to do it. Um, yeah. What? How far did the process go with the pilot? Um, it didn't go that far. It was the person who was writing the show himself. So uh, I 
it was more about him completing the script and getting it approved and getting it sold to networks. So uh, that was all vague to me. He kept me sort of in the loop on that, but mm-hmm. it never got to the point where it was officially sold. Okay. And, and so what I believe once it's like, or they do the, yeah, they sell the actual pilot and then they do like the test run and then they see about this doing the actual season. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, because it never got that far, he didn't actually fully cast it. I see. Okay. Uh, but I guess it planted a bug in your ear to try to create some ideas of your own. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I mean, I don't want, I don't want you to give away your ideas, uh, but how did you come up with ideas? I mean, I don't want to create my own pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, the the bug that it more planted was how cool it would be to be in the sitcom world, and yeah. and it just made me it it just made me think about it all. Um, mm-hmm. At first, my goal was to see if I could get cast in in a sitcom like that, mm-hmm. but. Now it's more like my current focus is YouTube and I'm just, instead of trying to get cast somewhere and go on a million auditions, I'm more just trying to put myself out there and in every small creative way that I can. Mm -hmm. So I'm just creating as many short videos as I can currently to just put my personality out there and then see what comes to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, sort of like the process or the thought that you had in creating a show, you know, like you're trying to find something that stands out from the millions of other things that are out there and says who you are. And it's, and you're also thinking about, you know, how it even looks and what sort of experience people can have with it. And the best way to really do that is always going to be to be yourself be your weird self and put it out there and and stand out. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a whole different exploratory process seeing all the different content that people put on YouTube. And I've really been getting into watching vloggers like Casey needs that. Do you ever watch him? I have not. Yeah. He's this really interesting New York city vlogger. He's got a wife and a baby and he like skateboards around Manhattan from his studio space to his apartment all the time. And, um, he's just got this really interesting life and he's put his whole story on the internet and you end up feeling like really close to him cause he's so honest yeah. and, and it's been really cool to, to go down this pathway and think about if I were sharing myself in that way, like how would I do it? And it's so different from stand up because, I feel like stand-up's not really, or most of the time, I can't speak in such generalities, but I don't think it's about being so close to the audience. I think it's about, it's more about leading the audience somewhere and and taking taking them away from their troubles and Mm -hmm. relieving their tension and saying, aren't, like, ultimately, I feel like a lot of stand-up is saying, aren't we better than those people over there? Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that's, that is, that's that's a fun, cool roller coaster of an experience. But I think a lot of what I'm seeing online, or at least in the real content I'm finding, it's not, aren't we better? It's, this is what I actually am. Mm-hmm. And 
and there's actually just a period at the end of that sentence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's really interesting. No, that is really interesting. I, I dig that. I haven't seen <laughs> a ton of that particular kind of work um, just because I haven't looked into video logs so much. But um, that's that's neat. You know, I'm going to start looking into some of that. <laughs> I have seen cool, like cool. Humans of New York. Um, oh, I like that. Yeah. 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 And they have like a TV show now. And then, you know, that's kind of the thing. Like you say, you're focusing on YouTube and re- people can do that now. You know, like people can uh, really make a name for themselves and they don't have to get on a different platform even uh, if they have the right kind of success on whatever platform they're on. If they get enough attention, then they can make a living that way they don't have to get nbc to pitch a show to them or something like that um yeah you know, it's that's, true it's you can be self-made yeah that's one of the cool things about the age we're living in right now and uh, of course there are different levels of success and different ways right. to get there as well so i feel like uh, a lot of a lot of doors have been opened I would really agree with you, but I would also say that I think YouTube, especially in the last couple of years, it's really changed a lot. And uh-huh. I think it's becoming this thing where there's lots of a, like, there's lots of a middle class. There's just mm-hmm. a lot of people who are tiny YouTubers. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these huge companies that have millions of subscribers. And then there's individuals that have millions of subscribers and they're kind of like all sharing the millions with each other. Mm. So it's a really interesting thing. Um, it, it, there's really not a lot of, of space in the middle between the two worlds. Yeah, I guess once something does start to blow up, then it <laughs> you know, it, it gets to be more like that. Where, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, if you got in early enough, then you can get the really big, big stuff going for you. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and that's, I guess, where it's like their levels to what success you can have. That's true. I mean, I think YouTube tries to help people upwards at a certain point. They have a thing, they have spaces in New York and LA where you can create there, but you have to have 10,000 subscribers to get in the door at all. Mm-hmm. And then the more subscribers you have, the more help they'll give you. So I think that that's really cool. But, yeah, for the people under 10,000 subscribers, it's uh, you, you're basically in it on your own. Mm. I didn't know about that. I assumed something like that was going on because I do understand that there's, there's basically uh, you can get priced out of getting your stuff out there on Facebook. So it sounds like that sort of thing can happen on YouTube as well. How do you mean priced out? Basically, and I know very little about this, but I just heard some people talking about Facebook and how, uh, you know, if you have a business page and you're putting out videos consistently, people aren't necessarily seeing that unless you are paying a certain amount to get it out there. And, um, oh. you know, it's just like, there's some sort of weird thing also in the algorithm too, I guess. And like what they, what sort of content that they will, uh, push out more than other content. It's just like how on Facebook, there's certain friends that you always see, and then uh, posts right. of, and then other friends that you never see posts of, but they're all posting stuff. That's interesting. I wish I knew more about 
these algorithms. I think it's so weird that they're that these companies aren't transparent about like what to do to get more exposure. Yeah, it does seem like even if the answer was just give us fifty dollars a month and we will do blank. Like, okay, fine. <laughs> right. Just tell us that. Like I know. Like oddly they want that control. I think it's like that's how they feel like they have power over us. Yeah, I guess. Like, that's how they keep us coming back for more. Yeah, it's so weird. It's just kind of like if a business has a page and somebody follows that page, then they should be updated on what that page posts. Whether they Mm -hmm. pay for uh, some additional stuff or not, uh, just the basic thing, uh, the basic assumption everyone has is that when they click follow, they will see that person's stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that's what that's right. following works. And right. when you stop seeing it just because of whatever reason, no one knows. It's just weird. You know, it's just like, I don't know. This yeah. is odd to me. No, it is confusing and strange. But I, I don't know how, I don't, there might be some sort of technical reason why, you know, like you can't see everything all the time. Um, but I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I even noticed it on Instagram where I, I went to a couple of pages I don't normally go to. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, it, then it, they started showing up in my feed more than usual. Uh, mm. I, I realized like, oh, I've been missing a lot of their content thinking I had seen it uh, or seen all their stuff. And I wasn't seeing all their stuff. <laughs> and it was just because I hadn't engaged their content in a while. So it oh, that's so weird. Yeah, it's so weird. It's like it should still show up in my feed. I'm following them, but you know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, because and then like they have the notifications feature on all these things too. So mm-hmm. it's like you're following them, but then you have to get notifications to see everything like mm-hmm. that they post immediately. I don't know. It's just exhausting to me. I don't. It is I don't know exhausting. What to say. It is exhausting, and that's, I think, some of the stuff people overlook when they're trying to navigate the online world for their comedy work or what have you. And um, I think that's what can make it a little daunting, but, you know, uh, I think it's understandable that the most important thing to look at is finding your voice and figuring out the best way to present that voice and crafting how you present that voice yeah brought it back home yeah now when you (laughs) started finding your voice was do you think it was connected to you're saying i'm just gonna say the weird stuff that i'm too afraid to say in person um what like my twitter voice or my stand-up voice because i feel like they're different oh okay yeah um let's let's uh delve into both and how you found your voice. Cause, so you, you see yourself as having two different voices in, in those two. Not like two different voices, but a lot of what I put on Twitter is like, I'll be the crazy person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I'll put or what I would do in stand-up, which I haven't been doing stand-up as much anymore, but uh, it's more like I... Am, like I have to make myself normal to the audience to get their trust, <laughs> and then, like I'll have the exaggerated voice there. Basically, as my punchline usually, uh-huh. but I'll be a normal person to them. Okay, 
And um, when you figured that out, what sort of process did you go through? Was it just as simple as I'm just going to tweet stuff and see how it gets, what sort of response it gets, or I'm going to go on stage with this and just the trial and error of that? It's all trial and error, and it was extremely painful, and there's so much rejection. Yeah. Like, because I, um, with my friends, like, because everybody usually figures out that they're funny just socializing as a kid, and with my friends as a kid, I just would do weird shit. That was my, that was my game, was I was, there, nobody could out-random me. I was just... <laughs> absurd and that was just my sense of humor and I loved it and my, and when you know me and when you trust me you love it but uh you when you when I'm a stranger and I'm doing weird shit to you you're terrified <laughs> and I had to realize that by going on stage and and trying Andy Kaufman like things that people would get repelled if they didn't if they were confused past mm. a certain point yeah and um you know, I love the idea of somebody like Andy Kaufman. I I love when people don't have any idea what's going on. I I think that that is it's, it's art. I mean, I, of course, like there's that certain point you have to relieve their confusion by because confusion right. turns into anger very quickly. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. I mean, that's when people get offended by something, and of course, that's one of the things that's been talked about in comedy for the last few years. Yeah. So, uh, ultimately I did not like how far away I had to be emotionally from the audience to try to be the weird person. Mm. And it made me feel uncomfortable. So I came up with more just like, I'll just do absurd. Like I'll be a normal person with absurd punchlines. I just like to speak in hyperbole Mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, it's hard. Cause like, I don't think, I still don't think with, with like my latest set that they can put me in an easy box. And that's yeah. the thing about stand up is it's easier when you make yourself a stereotype, Yeah. but I don't think I succeeded in making myself a stereotype for the ease of the audience. Um, so, so, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. Like, I don't know how to progress to a step further because I feel like I'm just still after all these years, like it's not so simple for them to get me, but I, I felt really proud of my last um, clip that I put online. Cause I, I can tell that they don't like, they're, they're not like I get her, but they are like, mm, she's a wild card of human. Mm-hmm. And I'm into that. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's, it's tricky. It's really tricky. Yeah. Finding that balance. Yeah. Now, um, we're, we've come to the end of the episode where we create something together. And something I'm really interested in, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, getting a show up somewhere in a room. And maybe we can sort of talk through what I would need to do in order to make that happen. Sure. Well, what, uh, what kind of show do you want to have? Well, let's say... Uh, I have so many ideas, but let's say it's like a variety show, right? Because that's one of my okay. Ideas. <laughs> so it can incorporate uh, maybe some sketch, maybe some improv, even, and then have a stand up on, um, and uh, maybe every even 
a musical guest every once in a while, but that could be kind of hard to uh, make that work because they have the setup that they have to do. Um, so mm-hmm. it would the so the idea is determine what kind of show you want to do and how you want to present it, and then start looking for venues. But then one thing you need to think about with venues is what can put on the type of show you want to do. Yeah, but I think before everything you just said, you have to figure out your goal, like what you want to get out of it. Okay. Okay, yeah. Because like you were saying, you wanted to do something that was not like anything else anyone saw. Was that the sort of goal? Uh, or well, That's any more like the step in between. Out? I wanted to have a leading show in the New York City stand-up scene because I wanted to raise my uh, status, to be quite honest. Okay. And that was my goal. So I do right. feel like it, it definitely worked. Okay. Um, so figure out what you want. You know, like if your goal is to raise your status in the New York stand-up scene, I don't know that a variety show will 100% do that because it takes away booking from the stand-ups you could be booking. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you have only one or two different types of acts, but it's a, it's like figuring out exactly what you're trying to do. Like, do you want to be, do you want to reach a large audience? Do you want to help people practice their jokes and just have a smaller show? Do you want to have as many stand up spots as possible to reach as many people, as many comics as you can, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. got to figure that out. Mm. So then there are the other steps that I mentioned already <laughs> that I jumped the gun on and mentioned those before that important aspect of uh, goal setting. Um, mm-hmm. so you get the goal and then you think about uh, all that other stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, when you find a venue, uh, like how does it work with just them allowing you to do the show there? I mean, is there is there an idea of like, oh, well, you'll rent the space or is it a uh, giving them, letting them just sell, sell a lot of booze? <laughs> what is the idea? It's there? different everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's like you'll have to figure out what works for you. But the model that I think most people follow is asking the venue simply to just use their space without any exchange of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, it, it depends again on your goal. Like that, that might work in a tiny venue. I've rented spaces before I've done ticketed shows. I've done shows with open bars and a flat rate at the door. You know, you, you, you figure out what makes sense for you. Okay. All those different options. They're all different for what the goal would be. Right. And once you've uh, found all that stuff and figured that out, I mean, there's naming the show, of course, but uh, how do you promote the show? What's What are the avenues that someone can go down in that regard? Yeah, I think promotion is more important than, like, promotion is equally as important as the goal. Because mm-hmm. um, if you put on a show and you don't have an audience there, there's no point, in my opinion, to have the show. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of people that like will still put on their show, even though an audience didn't show up. And that, I don't know if that's like, I personally wouldn't do that, mm-hmm. but I w- would get really aggressive about promoting it. You know, you always want to make sure you post on your social media, but that's not going to take you that far. Yeah, I would experiment people with, who know you. yeah. And plus those people might not even go. Right. And so I would experiment with advertising 
like you have to have a good like intriguing personality of a show to be even putting out there to a stranger. So have that shit together. Mm-hmm. Then, then you have something that you're excited about and you want to just tell as many people as humanly possible. So yeah, experiment with Facebook advertising. Um, when you have a, like a really attractive looking event and you're promoting it on Facebook, you, and you're, and it's reaching people in, in the neighborhood of your show and you set it up that way you end up getting a ton of people confirmed yes, and that's exciting to other people. The more people you have confirmed yes, the better of, of a show it looks like. Mm-hmm. So you have all that stuff, and then and then I would physically just go on the street and put up posters and make sure the posters were really intriguing and really would stop people in their tracks, and then I'd give out stuff on the street too and just do everything possible to fill your show. I mean... And again, it all has to do with who you're booking. Like one time I got Alana Glazier from Broad City mm-hmm. and I didn't have to do any of that stuff because all I had to do was put her name in it. And in one hour, the show sold out. Right. So it's like there's so many different puzzle pieces that you have to fit together. Did she do stand up? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that she ever did stand up. That's awesome. Yeah, she didn't start in stand-up, but after she got successful on the show, she really ventured more into the world of it. And now she has a show, I think, at Union Hall. Oh, cool. I had not heard of mm-hmm. this yet. Awesome. Well, yeah. this is all really good information and, and suggestions. There it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Very glad to have had her on the podcast. I've been following her for a long time. You can follow her, too. Of course, you can go to her website, DarylynKelleher.com. Of course, the link is in the bio. But also, you can follow her on Twitter at DKizzle. That's D-E-E-K-I-Z-Z-L-E. Of course, all of these social media accounts and other links are in the bio. You can also look up Darylin Kelleher on YouTube and find her page and her videos. You can also find out more about us online. There it is, pod.com. There's also a support section, and you can go to Twitter or Facebook and follow us at There It Is Pod. Well, that's this week's episode, folks. I hope you're inspired and encouraged. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.